province invokes undrip on fish farms, breaks a ride-sharing pledge, and the B.C. Liberals' first leadership debate falls flat. Those issues and more with Global B.C.'s Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, political science professor Hamish Telford. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. A pleasure to be joined on the phone this morning by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Both appear to have survived yesterday's ShakeOut BC event. Good morning. <laughs> Mr. Baldry rescued me from the building again and escorted me out. He's my earthquake warden and he looks after me. <laughs> Is it ever going to be your turn to carry Keith out, Vaughn? What's, what's going on there? I'm Keith jokes oh, that... I'm the I'm the senior earthquake warden at the ledge. So oh, okay. Uh, I'm in charge of Vaughn. <laughs> I also get to boss politicians around, including a couple of cabinet ministers yesterday, who I inform you're standing in the wrong place on the lawn. Get over there. <laughs> that, that is always a good day, Keith. Uh, gentlemen, a fuss this week over a letter Agriculture Minister Lana Popham penned to Marine Harvest, a fish farming vi- a business invoking UNDRIP. Uh, for those who don't know, that's the United, De- the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, which sounded suspiciously like a threat to evict, something the Premier tried to untangle for reporters on Thursday. Uh, there's a lot going on here, but safe to say a uh, potential for some serious ramifications, Keith. Oh, it's uh, for sure. Vaughn's written about this extensively this week. We both received this letter from uh, leaked from Lana Popham to Marine Harvest, uh, a fish farm company that's been in existence for decades uh, on the north end of uh, Vancouver Island. And it basically reads like a shakedown letter, which is don't re-fill re, uh, f- uh, your pods, uh, replenish your pods, uh, because and, and if you do so, the implication is you, we, your, your tenure is going to be up soon, your lease is going to be up soon, and it may not be renewed. And it's extraordinary. When I first read it, I think Bon and I both had the same reaction. What's a, what's a cabinet minister doing, signing or writing a letter like that, which is something that you, you would think a, a deputy or a, or a head of an agency would write? This is a direct threat from a cabinet minister, which I really have never seen before. And the government furiously backpedaling now, but the implications are quite significant because Lana Popham, in her letter, does refer to UNDRIP as if there's a new reality now. A number of First Nations don't like the fish farms on the west coast of, of B.C., but a lot of uh, First Nations do like the fish farms and, in fact, own them and operate them themselves. So it's a very complicated situation, but already the B.C. Business Council is uh, sounding uh, a note of alarm. Uh, this has got a, a ripple effect through, I think, the entire resource sector, that their, their tenures, their leases, their tree farm licenses might be up in the air now because of First Nations uh, demands that they, be, they cease to exist. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary situation. And uh, the Premier, John Horgan, uh, in, on Thursday basically uh, said uh, he does not equate uh, UNDRIP as a veto, but Vaughn, as you noted in your column, that's a distinction without a difference. Yeah, people are going to have to haul out their dictionary on this one. Um, so UNDRIP, there's 46 principles in it. The key one for British Columbia guarantees First Nations, Indigenous people, free, prior, and informed consent on decisions regarding land resources within their traditional territories. So as you know, Shane, um, there's 203 First Nations in British Columbia. The entire province is the traditional territory of one First Nation or another, and in some cases with big overlaps. So free, prior, and informed consent, says the Premier, doesn't mean a veto. Well, you know, I, I go back to your dictionary again and again. I, I don't see how it isn't. Uh, in fact, First Nations leaders and the one of the leading 
First Nations leaders in the country, Perry Bellegarde, has said it's the right to say yes and the right to say no, which sounds like a veto. It's, it's distressing to see a politician like John Horgan, who's normally very direct and very plain-spoken, quibbling on the wording on this one. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with free, prior, and informed consent. I mean, First Nations should have a say in the process, but I think it's complex in the case of Marine Harvest, for example, uh, where, as you noted, Vaughn, in your column, that they've done a lot of work with the majority of First Nations to get them on board with their their business concept, Um, but there are uh, some that aren't very happy, and that's the fly in the ointment here, Keith. Yeah, I mean, the the problem in British Columbia, and the reason that the previous government was reluctant to to adopt all of the principles of the UN declaration many of them are many of them are great principles and most of them i think would be acceptable the reason they hesitated is because of the problem in british columbia with overlaps where it's not clear uh that uh, this reading of the UN declaration implies unanimity is necessary um and and you can see we can see in a lot of places in bc that that some first nations are in and partners and others are holdouts and and you'd expect that but how do you resolve it shane the other problem with this is this is one fish farm company's tenures on the north coast that are threatened but there uh, there's a report on the website of the ministry of forests land and resources which actually is the ministry that deals with tenures on Crown land and Crown resources in British Columbia. There are 60,000 of these in B.C. spread all over British Columbia. They range from big stuff like the ability to operate a fish farm or run a mine or drill a gas well or cut timber to small fry stuff. Uh, People with recreational cottages on on Crown land, they have a tenure. Uh, ranchers who may have the right to graze their cattle on crown land, uh, people who have water rights. It, it's a massive issue, and here the government chain has come along and suggested that they've changed, they've embraced this in UN declaration. It's changed the rules, and now the renewal of your tenure may be threatened. Yeah, uh, worth noting, by the way, Canada voted against that uh, UNDRIP declaration of the United Nations. But Keith, uh, from the bigger picture perspective, I mean, this province already has a problem getting natural resources off the ground due to uh, red tape at the local government level, at the provincial government level, at the federal government level. Uh, and now we have this other sort of complex issue thrown in there. Does it, does it make it just that much more difficult now? Oh, yeah. And, and it's also going to make it, uh, you know, I asked John Horgan, does this not present the possibility of a significant investment chill uh, in B.C. I mean, if you're a foreign investor or even a, a, a local investor, <coughs> would you <coughs> actually sink a lot of money into a, a natural resource sector when you've got the environmental assessment hurdle, which is can be onerous, uh, various regulations and zoning that can be onerous, and now you throw in this other layer of, uh, of uh, potential veto uh, for one section of of the community over your your investment, I just think it's uh, it's another layer of uh, of roadblock. I think to potential investment in BC, even existing investment. And John Horgan t- told us when we were talking about it that this is not about the past in terms of past projects and past centers, but the future. So anything that's about to come on board in terms of a future project is under this umbrella 
of UNDRIP. And I note, uh, you mentioned Canada voted against this. Uh, the federal liberals campaigned in favor of embracing UNDRIP in the election campaign, but very quickly afterwards, Jody Wilson-Raybould, First Nations leader herself, who's the Justice Minister, informed everyone, well, that's a little problematic. And, and their legal analysis was that this was indeed a veto. So they've gone back to the position of, of full and informed uh, accommodation with First Nation, but the consent part, the veto, has been rejected by the federal government, yet it seems to be embraced by the B.C. government. Yeah. Uh, on the fish farm thing specifically, it caught my ear when John Horgan was talking to reporters, uh, and you guys were in the room for this on Thursday, uh, that he specifically um, focused on closed containment farmed Atlantic salmon as opposed to open net farming, basically saying open net is not the way to go and that the demand and the appetite is for closed containment, which seems to fire a shot across the bow of how some of those fish farms operate, Vaughn. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, my colleague Randy Shore has another development reported in the Sun today. So the this area is very controversial, and it's been the subject of political debate for a long time, the Broughton Archipelago. Uh, Shore reports in the paper today that the provincial government fish, fish pathologist, Dr. Gary Marty, in the Ministry of Agriculture, did a report two years ago where he dismissed the idea, discounted the idea, that sea lice were having a huge impact on the salmon wild salmon population in that region. He's a scientist. He works for the ministry. He reported that two years ago. Well, First Nations want him fired. These are the people that are the First Nations that have been occupying the minister's office and the premier's office. They want him fired. And in response to that request, the government has launched an investigation into his work. Now, this, is an in, this isn't some... This is an in-house public servant in the Ministry of Agriculture. So we're talking about a chilling effect. What does that message send to the public service? Mm -hmm. That if you produce a report that First Nations don't like, they call for your firing and the government puts you under investigation. Yeah. Uh, final words uh, to you, Keith. I think it's a very troubling situation. You know, we flagged this before. Vaughn and I and a couple others have been flagging the, the ramifications of UNDRIP before the election, and I thought the Liberals were going to make more of an issue of this in the campaign. It never came up once, because I think both sides were nervous about uh, stirring a potential hornet's nest here. But the implications of this are huge, and I think uh, it's started to dawn on the business community what's at stake here and in terms of jobs and industry. And it's going to be interesting to how far the NDP is willing to go to accommodate the basic veto of a number of First Nations. And it's going to be it's an interesting situation, and this, in this case is a microcosm of what's around the province. In this case, you've got 15 First Nations bans in favor of fish farms and part ownership of fish farms in that area. I think four or five are opposed but the opposition is the one that steers the ship right now. And whether it steers the ship in every locale across the province, including Kamloops, will be interesting to see in the days ahead. All right, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll pick up uh, on the other side with Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Uh, the ride-sharing uh, situation, which uh, continues to be a bit of an uber challenge. More on Inside Politics on NL right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford.
Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, this ride-sharing thing continues to be a bit of a fiasco to, to bring our listeners up to speed. It was then Transportation Minister Todd Stone who threatened to put undercover investigators in the street to root out Uber drivers. Liberal Party then pulls a U-turn prior to the last election campaign, throws the door wide open, begins consultations under then-Minister Peter Fassbender. The NDP run in the election to bring uh, Uber and ride-sharing companies into the province uh, before the end of this year. And as we learned this week, that is not going to happen. And Vaughn, you caught the uh, Transportation Minister Claire Trevena in a bit of a sticky position uh, this week. Well, Trevena is not the strongest member of cabinet, I would say. She's got a lot of files in front of her, but on this one, it, it, look, the the New Democrats promised to deal with this by the end of the year. Their partner in power sharing, Andrew Weaver, has put a bill before the House that would move this along. And instead, the New Democrats are hiring a consulting firm that already did some work for Vancouver City Council back when Premier's Chief of Staff, Jeff Meggs, was a councillor in Vancouver. And this looks like a stalling tactic. They're going to review the same company that's already reviewed it, is going to review how to protect the taxi industry and all the problems. And then when they get to the end of that, maybe they'll consult the ride-sharing companies and maybe we'll have legislation a year from now, which is a classic stalling tactic. Yeah. Uh, Keith, to what extent does uh, the taxi lobby, I know a lot of unions have, have, are firmly opposed uh, to Uber and their ilk, uh, how much of that is sort of pressure from within the NDP government on this issue? Oh, I think there's extraordinary pressure from the taxi industry. It's a very powerful lobby, uh, very much entrenched in status quo, no change. You look at how many industries go through technological change, uh, whether you like it or not, including the media. Um, and uh, But the taxi industry refuses to do that. So it's a very entrenched lobby, and it, it's sort of centered in some, some key geographical areas that are key, potentially key in elections, places like Vancouver and Surrey and Burnaby, where, where getting a taxi is a real problem. I mean, it's, it's, that's where the concern is. You know, try to get a cab in downtown Vancouver when a cruise ship is in town is impossible. Mm. And uh, trying to get a cab to the airport is impossible. So it's, it's a real issue in a relatively small areas of the province. Ridings at uh, the level that can be key to determine who forms government or not, which is why I think all parties are sort of... Uh, taking baby steps on something like this. And the Green Party, which really has nothing at stake here, because they're not going to form the government, they don't really care, uh, but they're really pushing hard on this. But Weaver tabled this bill yesterday. It's the same bill he's tabled a couple times before. Uh, but Mike Farnworth, the NDP House leader, told me that that's nice, but we've got our own process in play, this consultant bond mentioned. And so it's not going to be called for debate. Only the government can call bills for debate. Uh, it's not going to get to second reading. It will die on the order paper. Mm. Uh, Vaughn, is, is Mr. Weaver going to throw a conniption fit over this or what? Well, <coughs> he's got his territory staked out pretty well. He has an agreement with the government that certain bills will go ahead. This isn't one of them. Uh, he is determined to support the New Democrats, at least until we get the referendum on proportional representation in the fall of next year. So I don't think he'll bail on this. He's already taken his shot. There's a very funny comment on Twitter this morning about this, uh, Shane. Uh, noting that the provincial government put up $50,000 and the city of Vancouver has put up a whole plan to try to recruit the next headquarters, the second headquarters mm. for Amazon. Yeah. And somebody has tweeted, how likely are you to get a technologically savvy company like Amazon to come to the only city probably this side of the Antarctic 
that doesn't allow <laughs> ride-sharing and ride-hailing. I mean, Weaver's absolutely right about this, that only technological Luddites and the taxi lobby is going to be opposed to this. It, it doesn't send the message that you're a hip with it, sensitive to millennial city, to say we're not going to allow this to happen here or we're going to stall it for another year. Yeah, and that's exactly why I brought up the taxi lobby and some of the union positions, because it, it's true. So many other jurisdictions have had no problem either tabling rules, successful or not, in sort of guidelining the ride-sharing industry or having Uber and others Lyft, whatever, set up shop, London and England, for example, I mean, although they're having some issues now, but there are plenty of urban centers all over the world that have ride-sharing and there has not been a problem, let alone a massive negative impact on the taxi industry, yet here we are in Vancouver. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and you're right, the, the taxi lobby is entrenched, it's powerful, particularly within the NDP, uh, where, you, again, you've got some cross-alliances with, with various unions and the like, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a big, it's also a big issue in the South Asian Indo-Canadian community in Surrey and Burnaby and, and Vancouver. So this is very much inter, intertwined with provincial politics in terms of now, as the last election showed, riding, individual ridings are so uh, coveted by the parties in the suburbs of Vancouver and Vancouver itself that the interest of those particular areas in terms of entrenched lobbying groups uh, become paramount and, and wield a disproportionate amount of political power than, uh, than situations elsewhere in the province. So uh, I, I think the NDP is dragging their heels on this because they're very worried about it, and I'd be surprised at the end of the day whether we see Uber uh, before the next election. I'm curious, Keith, I know that uh, we know the state of Mr. Weaver's private bill on this, but uh, the Premier did uh, this week say that under his government, he's, he's hopeful that private members' bills uh, will be debated and some will be passed. Your, your thoughts on, on whether that could actually happen? I think it will happen because I think uh, what they've also done is David Eby, the Attorney General, has uh, authorized the use of the experts within government who draft legislation, the legal beagles, who, uh, you know, it can be very difficult to draft legislation that, that doesn't inadvertently trigger an un- unintended consequence uh, because you, you, you enact one bill, not realize by doing that you sort of have a domino effect by, by touching on other pieces of legislation you might not even be aware of. So he's going to give the, ser- the, the opposition parties access to the services of these drafters, and that will allow the Green Party or which I think is most likely, or the B.C. Liberal Party, to draft a bill or at least a series of amendments to a bill in front of the House, and it will pass the legislature. Because the NDP wants to show, along with the Greens, that a minority government does work, and not just one side of the minority government calls the shots, but the junior partner can as well, in time for that referendum bond mention on electoral reform next fall. So I expect in the spring we're going to see at least one example, if not an entire bill coming from the Green Party that will pass the House then a series of serious amendments from either the, B- the Greens or the B.C. Liberals that the NDP will agree with, and that will pass the House. And it will be the first time ever something like that has happened in B.C., but the NDP and Greens are anxious to show that this, this type of governing, which would result from proportional representation, can actually work and be effective. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn. Legislative drafting is one of the biggest bottlenecks in getting stuff done in government. It is complicated. There are a lot of laws on the books, and everybody on the team still remembers that awful episode that happened back under the old social credit government, where they consolidated the laws of the province and accidentally, without intention, wiped out an existing insurance company in British Columbia, just obliterated it. And they had to recall the legislature and reenact the existence of the company retroactively. So there are good reasons 
reasons for making sure that, that you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's on legislation, and it's one of the reasons why the NDP is held up in implementing some of its rev, uh, agenda as well. All right, uh, let's take a quick break, get caught up with the news at the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll pick up our conversation with Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on the BC Liberal leadership uh, leadership debate, the first of it, uh, first of a couple though, that will be held uh, during the campaign, uh, holding last Sunday. I thought it was a brutal format. We'll see if my two guests agree right after this on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, last Sunday the first uh, Liberal leadership debate was held. Six of the seven leadership candidates took the stage. Uh, and as I alluded to before the commercial break, I thought it was an absolutely brutal format uh, that fell absolutely flat to me, especially those 30-second responses, which I thought were total bunk. Keith? <laughs> That's what you really think. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, these guys are still feeling their way here. It's early days. Uh, I think it was a very stiff uh, format, uh, but with six candidates, it's tough. To, I mean, I've, I've structured debates, leadership debates, and election debates um, in the past. It can be tough to find the right formula to come up with a debate that really allows someone to to sort of show their stuff or emerge. So this is, they were all basically in, in pretty strict straight jackets, I thought. Um, and I think they've got to find a way to make more interaction between the candidates. And it can't just be yep. moderator, candidate, moderator, candidate. They've got to find a way. And Vaughn and I were uh, part of the, the Shaw uh, coverage of the leadership debates for both the NDP and the Liberals in 2011. And we found a way and a formula to allow the candidates to sort of turn and, and ask each other questions and face each other and test each other. And I think the Liberals will get there eventually. The next debate is in Prince George next month. And I think you will see some changes to uh, the format. I've been told that that's going to occur. And as we get into, the, I think, the key debates in the new year, because December 29th is when everybody's got to put up or shut up. You've got to put another 25 grand in. And I think you're going to see the, the pack culled a bit with at least a couple more candidates dropping out. So if we only have four candidates on the rostrum in, say, January when we get another debate, potentially a couple more, that's where I think you're going to see the, uh, a, a better debate and a chance for the candidates to sort of emerge from what I think right now is a fairly even pack. Yeah, I think the debate to me was summed up when they had a challenge round where the candidates were supposed to tackle each other uh, and there was this long awkward silence and then Todd Stone finally jumped in and said hey I like and respect everybody here we all have great ideas and then Sam Sullivan jumped in and said I respect Todd Stone we all have great ideas it was the worst challenge round ever Vaughn <laughs> well Wilkinson said at one point that it's not a real debate <laughs> I yeah, agree with uh, him amen. but there was an interesting there was an interesting standoff in there between Stone and Watts and Wilkinson in particular versus Mike DeYoung. So Stone, Watts, and Wilkinson all said that they thought the party left too much money on the table in the budget that it brought in uh, in the election year, that there was an opportunity there to spend more, to put to pay back British Columbians for some years of austerity and show that getting the budget balanced wasn't the point. The point was to be able to provide better programs. 
And the guy on the defensive on that is Mike DeYoung. And he did this whole wrap himself in the flag of protecting the interests of taxpayers. But really, when you talk to liberals about why they lost the election in the spring, a lot of them are still scratching their heads about why they didn't do a bit more on the spending side and take some of those issues away from the NDP. And yeah. the, other, the other thing that jumped out, and I've heard this from other liberals, is Diane Watts' reference to, we lost the election, we lost 11 seats. And more than one, well, a number of members of caucus and staff has t- come up to me and said, what do you mean, we? She wasn't <laughs> part of the party. Uh, she, was, she only joined the party, I think, after the election. She is not, has no history in this party. And I think that people getting their backs up or, of comments like that from her is an indication that Watts is going to have a rough ride here trying to woo the support of people within a party which she's never had any part of forever. And I can't find a refer- uh, an example where a complete outsider has come in and taken over a political party in this fashion, uh, you know, facing off against other seasoned veterans or veterans of the party. Todd Stone's been a, me- a-, a veteran of the B.C. Liberal Party since he was a teenager. So this is, uh, this is a tough road for Watts. And that, that one reference there is a, s- a signal of what, uh, what's to come down the road. So the debate is useful in that way. Vaughn's point about, you know, getting get some shots at De Jong is interesting because that's going to start taking hold in the next debate and this uh, look for i think a, a gang up on diane watts as the outsider who's not welcome and i thought i mean i thought she was hot and cold in there I mean, there's a debate uh in her her own backyard where she has a chance to shine i thought she did it on transportation issues uh but in other issues she seemed to flounder a little bit uh, Vaughn, what was your sort of sense of diane watts there well it's a, again another interesting exchange there which you see how this played out so watts is surrey and surrey is looking for a light rail transit line, the L line, to link up parts of its downtown. So it's not asking for a transit line to link itself to the city of Vancouver. It's not asking for SkyTrain expansion. It wants this light rail line. DeYoung, at one point, turns on Watts and says he thinks that what the government should do is extend SkyTrain, the existing Mm -hmm. transit line, out to Langley. So, again, there is one part of the party breaking with another part of the party over a huge issue. This transit line, this light rail line that Surrey is asking for, uh, Shane, is like, oh, it's over $2 billion. And as DeYoung says, why are we building a transit line that's not connecting communities together? That's just something that some city wants for its downtown. So it'd be interesting to see if the, where the New Democrats come down on this, because, of course, they've now inherited not just the government, but this commitment to build two transit lines, to extend, extend SkyTrain in Vancouver and to build this light rail line out in Surrey, which won't, you know, which you won't be taking that to get into the city. So there's, there's a really interesting debate emerging there on transit issues in the lower Mainland with a lot of money at stake, like billions of dollars. Yeah, and that's a big sore point south of the Fraser because uh, the view there is, and I think in, in a lot of ways rightfully so, uh, that they get gypped when it comes to transit. Vancouver, north of the Fraser, they get a lot, a lot of transit buses, SkyTrain lines, yep. uh, whereas Surrey has had the same four SkyTrain stops basically since 19, what, 1990, I think, or so. Yep. Um, so I think that they have a, b- a big point there, and I think DeYoung kind of stepped in it a little bit because I think uh, you probably heard all the eyes roll south of Fraser when he said that. Keith? Well, yeah, and, and, and Surrey's got a bit of a whip hand here. And, uh, again, going back to the importance of riding in an election, Surrey basically helped deliver government to the NDP. So they've got to be cognizant 
and aware of what the residents of Surrey want. But as Vaughn says, it's an interesting point. Do they want a, a longer SkyTrain extension, uh, which gets you uh, more residents able to commute into Vancouver, where still a lot of people work? Or do you just build transit within Surrey to go from one part of Surrey to another part of Surrey? And uh, it's a debate that's not resolved yet at the local level. Vaughn and I spoke at uh, an event just after the election, and the, one of the heads of the Surrey Board of Trade came up and talked to us afterwards and made that point that it's not a resolved issue within Surrey residents that uh, what, what is better is it light rail within Surrey or is it SkyTrain that connects Surrey to other communities uh, really quickly or what happened to Lucy Sager Vaughn uh, she didn't put up the $15,000 that it takes to get into the debates which you had, they all had to do 10000 just to enter the race another fifteen to join the debates she says uh, in fact, I think she told Keith this, that she will be in some of the later debates, so I guess she's been able to rustle up the dough. <laughs> I, I, she actually ran into me at the legislature on Monday. She sort of yelled. Hey, so we had coffee, very nice, uh, accomplished uh, woman. Uh, she's put up the 10000 She says she'll have the 15000 to get into the next debates. Uh, she says she's going to be there in Prince George. Uh, she's been traveling. She's had some money to travel. She was in Powell River. She's in the capital. Uh, so nobody knows who she is, but she says she's determined to be there come the next debate. I said, well, you're going to have twenty-five grand on December 29th, and she can't guarantee that. She'd like to have it. Uh, she's out there fundraising, but I think that one's still a pretty steep hurdle to get over. All right, uh, final question before we say goodbye on today's show. Uh, Mike Bernier uh, basically bowing out uh, through his support to Mike DeYoung. Surprise, Vaughn? Yeah, I was I was surprised that he picked Young. I'm not sure. Still don't know exactly why he did that. I would have thought he would go to the to Stone uh, to try to keep the North and Interior vote together. Mm-hmm. But uh, don't know what the issue was there. In any event, he's gone with the Young. Uh, he told me that uh, he the sense within the party is that uh, there has to be a lower mainland leader in order to beat John Horgan. Which, if true, uh, is not looking good for Mr. Stone, Keith. No, and that Stone's big challenge is uh, most of the seats are in Metro Vancouver. Uh, that's you know every seat is equal. Every seat has 100 points for up for grabs for these candidates, but there are about 50 ridings in Metro, and uh, that dwarfs the rest of the province. So that's Stone's big challenge. He does have some support though of, uh, of I think uh, down the road you're going to see some lower mainland uh, MLAs get on board with him. Uh, he's got an impressive campaign, but I really think right now the top two would be Stone and Andrew Wilkinson, and I would put I would put DeYoung and Watts sort of on the next tier uh, after that. It's um, it's I, I don't think that there, again any front runner front runner has emerged here, but uh, Bernier going with uh, DeYoung is again a bit of a surprise. He told me he backs DeYoung because he thinks he has the best chance, as you say, of beating John Horgan from the fact he's from uh, Metro Vancouver, from the Lower Mainland, and that he has uh, the experience. But I think in De Jong's case, his record can come back to bite him uh, uh-huh. within these uh, party membership, who may finger his tight-waddedness at uh, <laughs> budget-making as the reason they, got, uh, they lost the election in May. All right. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye, Shane. That's uh, Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer here on Inside Politics. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, University of the Fraser Valley political science professor Hamish Telford joins us right here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined on the phone now by University of the Fraser Valley political science professor Hamish Telford. Hamish, how are you? 
Very well, thanks, Shane. Good. Um, I wanted to talk to you because uh, leading up to the election campaign and even in the aftermath, you and I chatted quite a bit about uh, how tenuous this particular government formation uh, is going to be. And since then, uh, we've had some of the math change and we've had policy and some broken promises. Uh, so off the top, what's your assessment to date of how this NDP government supported by the three green seats, uh, how has it been functioning and do you see it lasting? Uh, I'm getting the impression that the NDP government is still trying to find its feet. Uh, they're, they're moving quite cautiously. That might be partly uh, related to the um, legislative alliance that they've got, the legislative situation where they don't have a majority and they're supported by the Greens. Uh, and Andrew Weaver has been a, a critic of the government as much as a, as a friend. Uh, so they are going slowly, um, and it might also be part of the experience of NDP governments in other places, which have tended to move too quickly, uh, so they don't want to rush into things and, and make mistakes. So I'll give them a bit more time to find their feet, um, but I would think by the budget of uh, next spring, February or March, they really need to have figured things out and know where they're going if they want to see this being a successful government. Now, how do you uh, have you reevaluated your estimate on their longevity? It was eighteen months, sort of, in the beginning of this thing. I think you've upgraded it further. Do you do you see it being more stable now, or or no? I do see it lasting um, uh, through the uh, eighteen months, possibly uh, two years. Um, but I'm 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 not uh, optimistic that it will last um, the full four years or four and a half years that they've projected. Um, part of we'll see what happens with the the referendum if they hold the referendum on electoral reform. I think that's going to be a key if they manage to pull off the referendum on electoral reform and British Columbians vote for it. Then I think the Greens will continue to support the NDP uh, to the end so that they can be sure that the next election will be fought on a system of proportional representation. However, if the referendum doesn't happen or doesn't pass, uh, then I think all bets are off. Uh, we've had a couple kicks of the can of this proportional representation thing. We don't know yet uh, what that ballot is going to look like uh, next year, but uh, there is uh, some pretty all-out opposition already launched against the idea. I see the Liberals this morning are circling, uh, circulating on social media a map of, of the province of British Columbia, which is uh, 99% blue and then a pocket of orange down sort of the coast and, and Vancouver Island and saying, you can't let orange change this entire electoral map. Yeah, and, and we did see opposition, especially in the last referendum. The first referendum that we had in 2005, I think it was, uh, there was broad-based support. We came very close to adopting it, but we missed high thresholds set by the government then. But support for uh, proportional representation, representation plummeted in the second referendum in 2009. Uh, it's done no better in other provinces in Canada. So it, it's a tall order to get one passed through a referendum. And that's if the government, and this is a big if, that is if the government can get us ready for a referendum in 12 months. Why do you say that's a big if? Uh, just because uh, this takes time. And when we've looked at the experience of our previous experience with this and the experience in other jurisdictions, it typically takes more than a year uh, to figure out uh, what you're actually going to vote on um, before you, you have the vote. And, and at the federal level, the Liberals uh, and Parliament uh, Parliamentary Committee discussed the matter for about a year and came up with no consensus at all and, and abandoned the project. This is a big thing to pull off in, in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, and, and we even really haven't decided on uh, what system of proportional representation will be on. Maybe there'll be more than one, but uh, some of those systems can be extraordinarily complex and trying to kind of uh, convey those to the general public is going to be a challenge, I would think. 
That's right, and that's partly why you need the time. If, if you do move, in all systems, uh, take a certain amount of explanation, and some are more complicated than others. And if you don't have the time to sort of apprise the public of what these changes mean uh, and how they're going to work, if the public is left confused, then obviously they, they won't uh, vote for something they don't understand. Uh, the Liberal leadership, uh, Mike Bernier, was one of the uh, contenders about this time last week, and then he pulled the plug. Uh, and uh, through his support to a guy in your neck of the woods, uh, Abbotsford's Mike DeYoung. Uh, surprised on your end? Uh, it was a bit surprising that, that he decided to abandon the race uh, this quickly. Um, I guess after he got in it, um, he discovered that you know it was more difficult than he, than he thought. Perhaps some endorsements he was expecting didn't come forward. Perhaps he had trouble raising funds. Um, and so uh, instead of persevering further and spending a lot of money on a futile cause, he, he got out and, and backed uh, one of the main contenders. I was a little surprised that he went to, to Mike DeYoung, uh, especially what you've told me, that, that he, he sort of thinks that uh, the next leader has to be in, uh, from an urban area. And I think as far as voters in Vancouver and Surrey are concerned, Mike DeYoung <laughs> is actually a big city guy and doesn't necessarily understand them and their urban concerns. I, I think there was also a sense in Vancouver and Surrey where cost of living is so high and, and there's pressure on schools and other services that the Liberal government was just a little bit too stingy. And of course, was the architect of that stinginess. Mm. So a little surprising that, that Mike Bernier threw his support there, but uh, there may have been other calculations going on that we don't know about. Uh, Todd Stone, by all accounts, is still seen as one of the front runners, but it now leaves him as sort of the sole candidate outside that metro uh, lower mainland area. Uh, does that, is that stand him in good stead, or is that a big challenge in your mind? I think he does have a big challenge uh, persuading uh, lower mainland voters that, that he's their guy. But now that he's the only urban candidate, or sorry, or only rural candidate left on the ballot, uh, I think he's got a pretty good run to the to the final ballot. Now that is if he can make himself the first choice of of the rural voters, um, and and here's why: the under the the rules of this leadership contest, each riding is going to be weighted equally. So the small uh, rural ridings with with not many members carry the same weight as the big populous ridings down in the lower mainland. So if he can sort of ensure that he's the first choice in the rural ridings, I think he's got a clear run to the to the final ballot uh, in which he'll be up against one of the, the urban uh, contenders, and then we'll just have to see how the cookie crumbles. Yeah, I know you missed the, the Liberal leadership debate last Sunday. You went to Whitecaps game, quite frankly. I think that's probably a good choice uh, based on what I saw. But what did you think of the fallout after the debate? Uh, I, I, well, I was a little surprised that, that the one sort of very unknown candidate didn't appear, Lucy Sager. I think that that, uh, you know, if an unknown candidate doesn't come to the first debate and introduce herself, that, that really uh, limits her chances even more so than it was before. Uh, it seems that everyone sort of performed uh, according to expectations. I don't think there were any reports of, of anyone flubbing badly, uh, which puts them in good stead, um, particularly at this stage for fundraising. This is not about winning votes. Nobody yet in, in February is going to remember the first leadership debate. Uh, but uh, having a good outing here or not having a bad outing um, helps them in building their organization and getting funds uh, together. Uh, and, and probably all the candidates feel fairly satisfied about, uh, about the outcome. Just out of curiosity, who are your front runners right now? Well, it's interesting uh, that um, I, you know, I thought there was a, a couple of front runners. I had Mike DeYoung, Andrew Wilkinson, the sort of uh, experienced cabinet ministers, plus Diane Watts, and then I had Sam Sullivan, Todd Stone, Mike Bernier, and another group. 
Um, but uh, and, and that might be how it is still, but according to an informal uh, poll that I saw on uh, the Vancouver Sun, this was just people tapping or clicking uh, the poll, Andrew Wilkinson was quite uh, out in front by a fair measure, Mike DeYoung second, and Diane Watson, Todd Stone, sort of tied for, for third spot. Um, that was inter- interesting to me, again, completely unscientific, but perhaps some indication of, of the level of public support for the various candidates. Mm, that is interesting. I thought Andrew Wilkinson, he's a nice guy, but man, oh man, try to marry your personality with your, your debate performance. He was as dry as a stick out there. Well, he's not at all very uh, charismatic, um, and he, he comes across, whether this is uh, the real him or not, but he comes across as a bit aloof and arrogant, um, and, and uh, it, it's hard to overcome those sorts of things and, and connect uh, uh, with, with voters. So I, I think he has some work to do in that area. Frankly, I think Diane Watts comes across a bit well, whereas Mike DeYoung and Todd Stone um, come across very personably. Uh, even if they're they're sort of tight with the money, as Mike comes <laughs> across as as uh, as the friendly uncle and and uh, very personable. All right, Tamish, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Okay, Shane. Bye now. Bye bye. Uh, that's Hamish Telford, University of Fraser Valley political science professor. Always a pleasure to hear from him. Uh, that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again here on Radio NL next Friday. Local. First, CHNL, AM 610 in Kamloops, RadioNL.com, the Valley's first choice for local news.